Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast. The scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The Word of the Lord. Between the words that are spoken and the words that are heard, may the Spirit of God be present. Amen. Here's a phrase, blood and sand. What does that conjure up for you? A classic cocktail inspired by Rudolph Valentino's 1922 film, The Bullfighter, which then inspired someone to add orange juice and cherry liqueur to perfectly good scotch because it needed it. (laughs) Swipe left. I got a better one for you. Think gladiators. Blood and sand. When the gladiators died in the Colosseum, men in costumes uh, would go out between bouts and they would sprinkle sand to soak up the blood. The Latin word for sand is harena, where we get our word arena. I think it's an apt metaphor for the arenas in which we tell our stories, our family stories, our national stories, and our religious stories. We sprinkle sand liberally to cover up the blood, as if to say, uh, nothing to see here. But we're living in a time where uh, many of us are saying, it's time to put down the sandbags. This doesn't work. We need the truth. Don't get me wrong. I believe there's much in the stories that we tell that is uh, true, beautiful, inspiring. But when you think about all the 
metaphorical sand that has been spilled to cover the actual blood shed in the name of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. Can you still believe that there is an authentic Jesus movement? Is that idea still even plausible? When Peter is asked, who do you say that I am? He's being asked at the crisp, clean beginning of the story. We ask ourselves the question. We're, uh, we're a different place, which is why I feel like I need this morning's gospel reading. I think it helps us see a way forward to find hope and truly listen to Jesus. And I've thought about it. Um, I've got a few takeaways about the ways of Jesus that the way of Jesus that I think was true at the time that question was asked to Peter and the disciples, and I think still true now. The way of Jesus is, uh, first of all, it's a way of love, not empire. It's a way of truth, not spin. It's a way of peace, not status quo. Look with me. First, this idea. Uh, the way of Jesus, if it's authentic still, is a way of love, not empire. Now, in the 13th verse of uh, Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do you say I am? And that phrase, Son of Man, that's a kind of enigmatic self-designation that Jesus uses. You find it in all the gospel in the in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, it comes from the book of Daniel. You can read uh, Daniel chapter 7, for example. It describes a figure who is called the human one, the son of man, or the human one, who suffers and dies, but is ultimately, mysteriously somehow, the instrument who establishes God's justice at the end of time. So, by using that name, Jesus is already identifying himself with God's purposes to heal the world. But here, he's leading the disciples to an even deeper reveal. Now, I don't want you to miss the context of where he's asking this question. Uh, Matthew says they were in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea. Uh, that's a nice, uh, you know, that's an old, <laughs> that's an old Latin way of saying Caesarville. This was a, a town built by King Herod. When he died, his successor, King Philip, decided to rename the city creatively. He called it Philip's Caesarville, <laughs> Caesarea Philippi. It, it's an interesting place for deep history for their, for the Jewish people. It's part of the promised land. Uh, it was the region of Naphtali, but now it is the regional center of the Roman Empire and of the cult of the emperor, the emperor who designates himself the son of a god. And it is here, in this place, Philip's Caesarville, <laughs> that Jesus asks his question. And it's the first time that he's named as the Christ or the anointed one, the Messiah. Peter makes this really, frankly, dangerous, treasonous confession. In fact, it's so dangerous, Peter, uh, Jesus will later say, don't tell anybody this yet. 
but he basically says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the liberator promised long ago to us, the one we've been waiting for. You are the true king who will liberate us from Caesar, the false king. You are the son of God. Hear that. That means he's not the son of God. You're the authority by which we should be organizing our lives and our world, not him. So Peter's able to see by faith in that moment that there's a deeper reality than the political nightmare they're living. The violence, the deception, the chaos of empire doesn't get the last word. Jesus is beginning to break through and reveal to them God's purposes, that God's way, the way of love, the way of radical acceptance, nonviolence, forgiveness, that way is deeper, is truer than empire. And if that is not relevant now, I don't know what is. I think that still holds up 2,000 years later. So it's a way of love, not empire. It's also a way of truth, not spin. We long for truth. It's interesting to me right now that there are millions, literally, I've just learned, there are millions of people who are falling prey to conspiracy theories. I just recently learned about QAnon. I'm sure you've been reading about it as well. I saw this uh, yesterday on social media. I saw this warning from somebody I know who said, and this is the warning, don't allow your temperature to be taken as you enter a store. It's a, a scam and a conspiracy. The deep state is erasing your memory. They also went on to add, I went in for milk, bread, and eggs, and I came home with wine, haagen and a bag of Snickers. Okay, that was a joke. That wasn't really queuing up. <laughs> but it's not a laughing matter, uh, because who we trust who can you trust? That's deadly serious. Peter makes this decision, and he goes all in. He is the first to acclaim Jesus as the Messiah. And then Jesus affirms him by renaming him. Uh, Simon, as he's known, becomes Peter right here in this moment. There's a play on the words there. Jesus says, you are Peter. It's the Greek word Petros. And upon this rock or stone, that's the Greek word Petra, I will build my church. What on earth does that mean? It is kind of mysterious. I think it is that, um, in a basic sense, Peter is the rock in that he shows us the way to stability, uh, to the wise person's house built on rock, not on bloody sand. Because it's built on the one thing that Peter gets right uh, momentarily here in this passage. Knowing who Jesus really is and looking to him as your source of truth. Jesus uses this amazing phrase. He says, the gates of Hades, sometimes you'll see that translated, the gates of hell, cannot stand against this. Uh, that's another metaphor for you know, the, the powers of death, the powers of evil. Think, you know, the gates of Mordor. Je Jesus is saying that the, the, that which emanates from these 
evil gates, he's not going to overcome his work to heal the world. It's not going to overcome his movement. But he's also saying their influence, their constant, relentless assault will be present. And it's in that light that Jesus makes this extraordinary promise. I will build my church. I will be the rock of living truth, a presence, personal and loving, that you can trust. Now, there's more going on in this text. Uh, there are more metaphors to come. Because he says to Peter, and I'm going to read you this. This is um, verse 19. As he continues there, he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So what are these keys to the kingdom? Well, scholars say that the key language goes back to the time of the Jewish exile, where faithful teachers of the Torah, when they've been torn from their land and they're this, this, under these horrendous uh, conditions and this disaster, those faithful teachers were said to have the key of David. So Jesus is using this language to name Peter as a faithful teacher during a dangerous time. Not, unfortunately, the gatekeeper of heaven. Sorry to ruin all those awesome pearly gates jokes. Tempted as I am to share one, but I won't. Uh, it's not that. When Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, that shows a strong Jewish sensibility, a Jewish sensibility to not name the name of God. So you'll see kingdom of God and some of the other gospels here, kingdom of heaven, it really means the same thing. Uh, but what it's saying is that God's dimension will be powerfully connected to whatever Peter is teaching and deciding in this world. He's being designated as the chief rabbi of the Jesus movement, though there are others who are super important as well. If you read the book of Acts, for example, it seems like uh, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, of James of Jerusalem, is also extremely important. Probably had the family resemblance and everything. Um, but Peter, at least for his lifetime, uh, is seen as the guarantor of Jesus' teachings. And whenever you see the apostles listed in the New Testament, his name's always first. Now, this this is a text with a history. Since the 16th century and the Protestant uh, Reformation and the Catholic Reformation, that, that huge split, which uh, there are many good things that come out of it, but there's also a deep tragedy in many ways. Um, Roman Catholic interpreters at that time you began to use this text as a way to prove the establishment of the papacy, uh, that the popes were continuing to have those keys, uh, the key, <laughs> uniquely, that Peter was given. Whereas Protestant interpreters turned around to say, now this isn't about Peter, it's certainly not about the papacy, this is about his faith, this is pointing to justification by faith, the idea that uh, it is faith that is the rock upon which the church is built. Um, and I think they both are onto something, and they're both kind of wrong. 
uh, and I, I'm not just saying that, a lot of recent scholars, both Protestant and Roman Catholic, are inclined to say, now this really is about Peter, historically. He's the rock. But he's functioning in this capacity in, un, in an unrepeatable way. It's talking about something very much in that time. So to the Catholic point, yeah, it is about Peter the person. But what makes him Rabbi Peter, Rabbi the Rock, is what? That he's the first to point specifically to Jesus as the unique builder and cornerstone. That's the truth, Jesus says in this text, that was revealed, he says, by my Father in heaven. But that, that really highlights for me the challenge of faith now. Can you look back over 2,000 years of violence, hypocrisy, blood and sand, and also see love and compassion, wisdom, courage, acceptance, forgiveness? We don't have Peter. That rock is not here. We have each other. And Jesus promised that by the Spirit, his way could be known despite uh, the power of the gates and the ubiquity of spin. Can you trust that despite the miscues of hypocritical Christian leaders, and let's face it, your own fumbles, that Jesus wants to truly lead you into his footsteps? I wish I could tell you I had a slam dunk argument on this one. I don't. I do think I can point to a slam dunk person. Jesus. Get to know his teachings. Spend time with his followers. Seek his presence and see if that presence, if that way emerges as something trustworthy. My own experience has been the longer I live, the more compelling I find it to be. Last thing, not only is it uh, a way of love, not empire, and a way of truth, not lies, it is a way of peace, not the status quo. So the rest of that metaphor was the keys and whatever he binds would be bound by you know, divine power, whatever he loosed would have divine blessing as well. What, what does that mean? Well, if you think of a community seeking to follow Jesus, there's a function of binding, that is, discerning what's wrong, kind of tying that off, but also loosing, discerning what's right, what needs to be pursued. Now, obviously, both of those are pretty important if you're going to live justly and faithfully according to the way of Jesus. And then there's also this extraordinary promise of heaven's power and of Jesus' presence in that challenging work of binding and loosing, if you're going to know peace, shalom, this idea of everything flourishing, life being just and flourishing in the way that God intends. Now, what's interesting about this text is that it begins with Peter, right? I'm giving you the key, I want you to bind and loose, and I'm going to be at work in your binding and in your loosing. But then, if you keep reading, go to chapter 18, particularly verses 18 and 19 of chapter 18, you'll see that that same function of binding and loosing is then 
handed on to the disciples and to the church as a whole, the peace, the flourishing that God intends, takes a lot of work, and it's actually everyone's work. It's really messy work. And I just want to, I want you to think about this with me for a few minutes, because this idea of binding and loosing, of genuinely discerning a way that leads to peace, it's really daunting. It's daunting in scope. Nelson Mandela, uh, in a speech he gave in India uh, in the early 2000s, he says, peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is the creation of an environment where all can flourish, regardless of race, color, creed, religion, class, caste, or any other social markers of distance. Okay, that's, that's a daunting, that's a daunting task. It's also daunting, though, in its time frame. Here's something from one of my favorite theologians, uh, Rowan Williams, is a former Archbishop of Canterbury. He frames the, the, the time frame this way. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And yet, for it to change everything, it's going to take the whole of history for it to work out. The end of the world does not come on Easter Sunday. History is not over. Rather, a work of God has begun, and it will take the time that it takes. Oh, man. That's a lot of binding and loosing. Which leads to the third reason why I find this so daunting inept execution. A lot of the church's binding and loosing has been botched and harmful. It smells more of Hades than of heaven. The binding knots have been, uh, the binding knots have sometimes been deadly, and the evil that has gone unchecked and unchallenged, it's even been championed and voted for. Let's not throw any sand over it. Yeah, there's lots of life. There's lots of justice in the arena, in the story. There's a lot of death. And there's a lot of injustice. You probably know where I'm going to go with this, though. Don't let the knots, don't let the bloody sand throw you. My family, we came to San Francisco 15 years ago. We become a part of City Church San Francisco. I was a pastor there when I first came here. And uh, then 10 years ago, we began Newbigin House. I, I look back on those early years, so much gratitude, so many great memories. But honestly, there's a lot of regret. But what I'm grateful for is that Jesus the Builder, Jesus the Healer, was present. I was part of a group of people who were able to discern that some of the ways we were binding were really hurting people. And some of the loosing we were doing was actually failing to take serious our call to justice. I'm not kidding myself. Um, I'm sure I, I'm sure your congregation will continue to get things wrong. <laughs> but I'm convinced because of that experience that 
God is faithful, and Jesus really does want to lead us into a way that gives life to all. So, who do you say Jesus is? Uh, or his movement of far from perfect followers? I'll leave you. I'll leave you with one thing. Peter was called a rock, but in Scripture, Book of Ephesians, um, all who follow Jesus are called living stones, which means that that who God created you to be, and what only you can do, that matters. Only what you can do as a follower of Jesus, that matters. But it also means that the future is not entirely on your shoulders. The invitation is, I think, the same today as it was 2,000 years ago to Peter. Let us follow in the footsteps of Jesus. If we truly look to him, he will lead us on the path of courageous love in dangerous times, of truth in an age of lies, and to the peace that the world so desperately needs. Amen.